0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. In this talk, Ashoka's founder, Bill Drayton, shares his story of building a global entrepreneurial organization. As a lifelong social entrepreneur, he offers guidance on how to develop broader visions, wiser strategies, and better tools for social change from the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor
1: and I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today we're excited to bring you a presentation from Ashoka's Social Entrepreneurship Series. In this series, you will meet six eminent global social entrepreneurs who are the founding members of Ashoka's Global Academy as they share their insights, strategies, and vision for change.
0: Recognizing the power of individual innovation in social change, Bill Drayton founded Ashoka in 1981. Ashoka identifies and invests in extraordinary individuals with unprecedented ideas for change in their communities, supporting them, their ideas, and institutions through all phases of their careers. For more information or to get involved, visit www.ashoka.org.
2: Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. Thank you, Limelight, for your support of the Conversations Network. The Conversations Network is supported in part by listener memberships, so please visit our website at conversationsnetwork.org to learn more about becoming a member.
1: And now, here's our presentation from Ashoka's Social Entrepreneurship Series. Bill Drayton is the founder of Ashoka, Innovators for the Public. Ashoka works at the forefront of the rapidly growing field of social entrepreneurship. It supports the work of entrepreneurs worldwide who solve social problems in far-reaching pattern-changing ways. Our job is not to give people fish, it's not to teach them how to fish, it's to build a new and better fishing industry.
2: From modest beginnings in the early 1980s, Ashoka
1: has grown into a community of over 1,500 fellows, supported by
0: staff members, partners, and volunteers in over 50 countries.
1: Eighty-eight percent of the people we elect at the end of five years have had other institutions copy their ideas, fifty-nine percent have achieved national policy impact, and on average they're serving 174,000 people. Bill Drayton has been a social entrepreneur all his life. He shares his story to provide insights into what it takes to create widespread social change. Uh, Both my parents gave themselves the freedom to do something quite unusual. Uh, My mother left Australia. She perceived the fringe of the world to come to the center of the world, New York City. She arrived as a cellist in the midst of the Depression, which is completely impractical. And my dad, 19, decided, oh, I'm going to be an explorer. I think that sort of self liberation is something that I just acquired from my parents and then more broadly from the family as a whole. Growing up in the center of Manhattan is just a magical gift. The moment as a child you're allowed to cross the street then this whole city opens up and every subway stop is a a different country, frequently a different continent. And, And New York is as diverse as tolerant, uh, as open-minded, and very much as energetic as any place in the world. I went to a school that, along with my parents, allowed me to start things. Um, Little newspapers and a bigger newspaper, and that required me to go and get ads and to be wandering around. And my parents may have worried, and they did worry, I discovered after the fact, but the man running the school said this is, you know, your son can do this and this is important for him. I loved history and geography. Uh, That is the earliest roots of Ashoka. Um, I became interested in Asia as a result. I went to a a large and tolerant high school that encouraged students to develop in their own path. And so I continued creating things. The one that became the biggest was the Asia Society, which ultimately had about a third of the student body as paid-up members, and we had one or two events a week. Ultimately, the school responded by starting to teach Asian history. I also was involved in the civil rights movement in modest ways, but really important ways for me. Very hard For anyone who didn't live through that period to know how powerful and how magical the Civil Rights Movement was, you could just see a hinge of history changing in front of your, turning in front of your eyes. I organized a group of friends, and we picketed the local Woolworth store. That got me in some trouble with the authorities in school. Uh, I was offended by their reaction, wrote off to various senators. Senator Humphrey called up Um, and that has a very beneficial effect. Several things began to weave together during this period, Um, uh, at least very consciously in my mind. The civil rights movement in India were absolutely tied together because our civil rights movement was a Gandhian movement. I think Gandhi is by far the most important person in the last century and His influence will go on for many centuries into the future. As the Industrial Revolution was gaining momentum, the world was changing and the opportunity is for everyone, to use Ashoka's core phrase, to become, to be a change maker. That requires us all in this new world to exercise individual judgment, individual responsibility about how we deal with others and with society. We have to put ourselves in other people's shoes and understand the impact of our possible actions and then make good individual judgments that we have to make. You can't empathize if you think other people are different from you, a different species, not equal. You cannot be a good person, an effective person in society without good empathetic ethics. Gandhi understood that all you had to do to cause change now was to get people to recognize a conflict between their behavior and this core belief. That's why he described his work as a truth force, the force of truth. You, you bring to the surface and you dramatize the falseness in the current situation. and Then people make a judgment, the society makes a judgment. And ultimately, it is that truth force that has caused all the empires to collapse. That became the new modus operandi in the last century. Gandhi understood it, and he translated this very profound, deep change in society into the new, most powerful, only really powerful way of causing change, the new politics the new change process. Once you understand that that's what Gandhi did, it was not just liberation of the Indians. That's a very important contribution. But he set in motion the modern politics of change. Harvard was a remarkable mix, an extremely rich time intellectually, but it was also a very rich time in terms of direct experience and thinking about that experience. I was involved in the early stages of the northern student movement. We were asked, for example, to help the Baltimore Civic Interest Group bring equality to the eastern shore of Maryland. I and others would organize buses every weekend. Some very unpleasant experiences there because this was not a welcome phenomenon some young men trying to drive us off the roadway and we'd have to dive into the ditch. You could see the fear and the anger on the one hand. And then at the end of the day, you go back to one of the African-American churches and it'd be this wonderful cookout dinner and you'd hold hands with the people next to you in a circle and sing, uh, We Shall Overcome. Those are images... Both types that are with you for the rest of your life. Now, that was a very active involvement. In between, was the Ashoka table. We would invite the Archbishop, the local Commissioner of Sanitation, uh, Mayor Daly, whomever to come to come for an off-the-record dinner. And sometimes there'd be bigger meetings for a broader audience as well. But it was always a twenty twenty-five person private dinner. Um, with this visiting person. So now, why did you do that? And what are the economics of this? An incredibly wonderful, um, steady flow of understanding of how the real world works. And then I had another great privilege when I was in college. I, I finally got to go to India. And I was able to meet many of the leading Gandhians who had been with Gandhi. Uh, you know, vinoba Bhavi, who is one of the leading Gandhians in India, he collected land voluntarily given larger than the state of New Jersey by the time I was there to redistribute to the poor, people giving their lives to this work. Then you go out and, and negotiate with the village elders for them to give the entire village. And the laws were written in such a way because of the Gandhian influence that if they agreed, then that would happen. Uh, all because this extraordinary force had arrived. And I learned so many important things from that trip and then subsequent time in India. I, I think by far the most important, actually, is what's really important in life. Um, it's whether or not you love and respect others and they love and respect you. Above a very minimum level of physical well-being, that is what counts. So uh, that summer in India in many ways was really important. It was a spur, a very powerful spur, to the launching of Ashoka. The statistics of 100 to 1 difference in per capita income suddenly took on a different meaning because these were your friends. So I came back with the question that any healthy person would, but certainly someone with an entrepreneurial temperament, what are you going to do about closing the North-South Gap? How can you speed up this, this wonderful, magical democratization process? The inevitable second part of that question is, what is the most highly leveraged way that you can help close the North-South Gap, speed up the development or change process? And that's where the Ashoka idea comes from. It's embarrassingly logical what is the most important ingredient in the change process any change process it's a big new idea pattern change idea but only only if it's in the hands of a really first-class entrepreneur at Oxford I tried to learn economics which mercifully was in English and a policy discipline, whereas in this country it had become a mathematical thing, and I don't think in mathematical terms. Oxford was very important intellectually in in many ways, a very rich community of scholars, of students. It also has a marvelously relaxed schedule, so eight weeks on, six weeks off, etc., lots of opportunity for travel. And so I was able to explore the Berber-Arab interface in Morocco, spend time in Central Europe, uh, et cetera. So the travel part, again, constantly feeding back and forth, is a very, very rich dimension of those years. Yale Law School was about much more than just the law. Um, An opportunity to create one thing after another. And by far the most interesting, ultimately, was Yale Legislative Services, which I started at the cusp of late 67, the beginning of 68, and uh, ultimately over a third of the student body were actively involved. A wonderful opportunity to bring together a real need, legislatures facing major, really difficult problems without much staff, very little staff, and students who want to make a contribution, who also aspire to having a career in major public service, but neither side knows how to deal with one another. And we provided the bridge between so that that worked. After law school, I was faced with a question, uh, should I do law, which seemed implausible to me after a very brief exposure, I decided to go to McKinsey & Company. And I, I chose McKinsey because of all the consulting firms, all the other opportunities for a really good apprenticeship. It was the one whose culture was absolutely focused on causing major change. But I learned so much at McKinsey. I learned about industries, skills, Analytical techniques, how you understand what's going on at the emotional level as versus just the intellectual level in a meeting or a larger pattern of interactions with an institution. I think the most important thing I learned was uh, something that is so basic but not articulated often, and that is that no institution can be healthy, sustaining effective unless it is absolutely ethical, and I believe that the reason McKinsey has emerged as the dominant best firm in the management consulting field is that it is built around that idea. I had a very early experience in my first six months at the firm. I was working for New York City, helping them design a whole set of new taxes. One of them was the tar and nicotine tax, which varied the tax by the level of tar and nicotine. That's what forced the tobacco companies in the next six months, once it was enacted, to come up with Pall Mall Models and Marlboro Lights, etc. In the second week I was designing this thing, the cigarette industry heard about it. They called a meeting at City Hall, they lied. I very politely pointed out that their people had said something else. The meeting ended in some acrimony. I was just sitting down in my office and in came this big man, decades older than me with authority written all over him, he said, are you Drayton? Yes. What do you think this is, An Nader office? Um, And I went to see the partner I was working for having detected there was some difficulty. Two weeks later I was invited to a lunch at the Racquet Club with the head and executive vice president of a major tobacco company, and this man, Marvin Bauer, whom I had innocently never heard of before. Um, I had some anxiety whether I was going to be served up for hors d'oeuvres or dessert, and Marvin turned to him and said, we serve 40% of the top 500 companies in this country, and no one has ever raised a question about our professionalism you have a question about that, and therefore we cannot serve you, and we will not serve you going forward. Marvin knew that this was the core of the institution. That's why it could attract really good people. Uh, That's why it could do really good work. That's why it could have trusting relationships. That's why people could be honest with one another inside the firm And you cannot come away from those sorts of experiences without understanding how absolutely central truth, ethical behavior is. And of course, that fits completely with Gandhi's insight about how the world works and how you cause change and the importance of truth, the truth force in his phrase. So, you know, all these pieces fit together. Um, You were learning about management, but it was the same thing as the rest of the world. My five years at McKinsey uh, also gave me an opportunity to look at the Green Revolution in three different districts in India for a month each, to take leave and teach at Stanford Law School, and then at the Kennedy School, after which President Carter, then Jimmy Carter, Governor Carter, called and invited me to uh, join his effort. And then had this unbelievable opportunity to move to the EPA, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. As assistant administrator, I had responsibility for policy and budget and management, audit. By the mid-70s, it had become obvious that there were thousands of chemicals, man-made substances, metals, in the air and the water. Up to that point, regulation was you write a rule, command, And then you enforce it, compliance. We added an in-between step, counter-proposal. So start with all the regulations. We don't undo that. It's politically impossible to do that anyway. But now we allow a company to come up with a counter-proposal. If they can figure a smarter way of doing it, great, as long as the results are the same. And then you enforce that. At that point, we called it the bubble. It's still referred to as emissions trading. So let me give you a mental image of why the bubble, and that will explain the core mechanism. In any one factory, you may have 100 different processes that give off the same pollutant, hydrocarbons, for example. Each process has a different set of regulations written by a different group of people at a different time, and no one has coordinated this. just the, it's the, the way the process has worked. Now, in fact, when you look at it, it turns out very commonly that removing one pound of the same pollutant can vary in terms of cost by 100 to 1. If you can substitute, you can drop a $100 costs for a $2 cost, you're a lot better off. Uh, so you save billions of dollars to get the same results. And more important, much more important, now every plant manager... Every engineer has got an incentive to innovate in pollution control. The same principle applies at the global level. So you can imagine the whole globe is within the bubble. If you're tr- talking about climate change or the ozone layer, it really doesn't matter where the chemicals are coming from. And so if it costs less to control a ton of a pollutant in India than it does here, you can work out a trade. So a power plant here can invest in the planting and maintenance of a forest there, which absorbs uh, the climate change pollutants that are given off by the power plant here. This is a win-win for the people in India, for the people in the U.S. Paid for by fees because people are saving billions and billions of dollars doing this. You can certainly pay for this. That very simple concept is now at the core of the Kyoto Agreement of changes going on in Europe and here uh, and in fields beyond the environment. The development of Ashoka is very typical of the development of any major entrepreneurial venture. The idea, of course, dates back uh, at least to the time I was an undergraduate. There was the challenge that came very sharp once I had been in India. You must close this north-south gap. You must speed up development, democracy in the world. But it, So there are many things that were very clear, uh, but something was missing, and that was that the, historical moment wasn't ripe, and also in our personal lives, it wasn't ripe. We needed to go through our apprenticeship. I had to spend time at McKinsey learning how the world works, learning the key skills of how you cause change. Then, as I was at EPA, we sensed that the historical moment was coming. You could hear the hinge creaking. And what we were seeing very personally was that our friends, my friends in India and elsewhere, were starting to be social entrepreneurs. And what was happening was that the post-independence generation in Asia was coming of professional age. They were now in their thirties. Their parents thought getting control of the government, take over those instruments, that was the focus. The next generation grew in an environment with these overpowering government institutions. And some of them felt they could do better. And so you could see the beginning of a very significant wave of social entrepreneurs who were having a very difficult time no word to describe the field no support institutions a lot of doubt ranging from their family to the government said oh this looks like this is the time Uh, then we asked all right well how do we intervene where can you intervene which will have the biggest possible impact with very modest resources, all we could imagine available to us at the time. And that is the moment when, you, when a person and an idea have finished their apprenticeship. And they know, the person, the entrepreneur knows that they have an idea that is the next big generic step for their field. Then all you wanna do is go full-time and run with this idea, seize the historical moment but who are you? What is this idea? It doesn't fit any of the existing patterns because they were set up to serve the old idea. At that point a little bit makes all the difference very little money so you can look your family in the eye and say I know it's crazy to leave my tenured job in a nice safe institution you've got to be able to look them in the eye and say you know I'm going to do this we give you the financial ability to do that if you need it but beyond that you now are a part of a family of your peers and your uncle can see that these people that are very respected in your society and internationally think your work is important, believe in you. The early years of Ashoka as for almost all our fellows raising money was a nightmare. No funding from any institutional foundation for our first six years. Basically, the Klingenstein, Lipkin, and Golden families, that was it. And I was working part-time at McKinsey, commuting to New York, Ashoka was going, and it was just, it was a very crazy time. And, and that overload is what made the MacArthur uh, sudden phone call in November of 1984, you know, miraculous. The MacArthur Foundation had chosen me to be one of its fellows, which gave me five years income. And also, very importantly, for people who could not understand what Ashoka was about, gave me a sort of vaguely reputable category to fit into. It was a very key liberating moment. I was able to go on leave from McKinsey, which I'm still technically on leave. Even while I was still at EPA, we started traveling to India, Indonesia, Venezuela, three very different countries in terms of size and culture. Say, will this idea work? How, key, always the key word for entrepreneurs, how do we find these r- remarkable leading social entrepreneurs before they've proven themselves? If we couldn't find a system that would do that reliably all across the world, this thing wouldn't work. We talked to, we counted it up at one point, about 340 people in the three countries over our collective vacations. And out of that came an important idea that if we built a community, a fellowship, that solved most of the problems. Leading social entrepreneurs are the role models to whom the next generation comes. They also can tell the difference, just in their stomach, they can tell the difference between someone who has what it takes to really change the pattern, who has got that and who doesn't. We'd sensed already that the historical moment was there, and we had reached a level of comfort that we could solve these problems. That was the time, the classic takeoff moment for the social entrepreneur that Ashoka looks for when we're looking for fellows idea, big idea, in the hands of an entrepreneur at a ripe historical moment. And so we started. We launched Ashoka to begin with only India, and over the first uh, five years, only India and Indonesia. And we went very slowly and carefully, but we made mistakes, uh, which we had to fix. Um, Simple things such as staff, We had a very good person, 26, energetic. She simply couldn't see around corners because she didn't have the life experience, and some people wouldn't listen to her. So we shifted to representatives that are typically in the 40s, very different. One of the first lessons we learned in India had to do with the criteria. We learned that it is a mistake for us to assume that the person we are looking at as a potential Ashoka Fellow will do with an idea what we would do. It's got to be what they would do. We, we learned when we analyzed this that about 40% of our uh, early failures came from that over-enthusiasm. And we've learned to discipline ourselves and make sure that it's the person's idea, but also that the person is committed to, their life is committed to changing the whole society. One of the first fellows in India, who is now actually a board member with Ashoka, uh, Gloria D'Souza, she's had a very profound impact on how children grow up in that country. She was a teacher in one school in Bombay. She had struggled to figure out how to break what everyone criticizes the rote memorization, the deadening process uh, that was so common in Indian education. And she, after many years, she'd figured out how to make it work in her class. Then, over five years, with a lot of trial and error, she made it work in one school. Now she was ready to roll this thing out, and she saw change the whole Bombay Municipal Corporation and ultimately the country. She was horrified that 70% of the children in Bombay's ambition was to emigrate. and As a patriotic Indian, she was saying, I've got to change this so these children grow up to be real citizens that solve problems and are able to do that. So we could see someone who had a large vision, a continental scale vision, had an important idea, had been through her apprenticeship, had shown her toughness. She didn't know how she was going to deal with the Bombay Municipal Corporation. She didn't know a lot of this. But we could see that she would know how to do that. And she has. Some 16 million children are learning with her materials. The central government in the Union Territories has announced that her methods are to apply. UNICEF has pushed her ideas in Sikkim. She's into the tribal schools. A really big impact. Now, this, she didn't invent modern education. The importance of what she did is she figured out how to make it practical and attractive for the teachers, the administrators, the parents, and the kids in an environment where none of them had this experience. That's a classic entrepreneurial intervention. Something is wrong in the human system that was blocking a change that many people saw was needed. And she, she went and she fixed that. In June of 1986, after we'd done all this trial and error at a very small scale, the board said, we've got it, not perfectly, but enough. Time to really spread globally. The first country we went to was Brazil, the biggest country, the core of South America. The generals had just retreated, gone back to their barracks around 1980. Five years later was a perfect time to enter the country. People had enough time to dust themselves off and realize that it was possible now to bring change without being thrown in jail, to organize. This whole process was beginning to bubble, a new wave of social entrepreneurs was coming up, and we came in at just the right time to help that wave take off. 1980, Brazil had 5,000 citizen groups, by the year 2000, a million. This is a country transformed, and we were able to contribute to that change. And Brazil, in turn, has been able to contribute to Ashoka in so many ways into the field. It's been a proving ground of many innovations. And so, in the next four and a half years, roughly, we grew the organization 750%, went to most of the continents. It was a very intense, wonderful period. Um, I was traveling six or seven months a year because we didn't have you know, you go to a new country, what is a social entrepreneur? Nothing was there. When the wall came down in 1989 Central Europe suddenly was freed. It was like Brazil in 1980. A talented population with a gigantic mess, a backlog of problems, unaddressed, now able to address them. People able to be free to think. And so we came in and we had this, again, wonderful experience of finding this wave of social entrepreneurs coming up, addressing these problems, and in this case, having been cut off from the rest of the world. So not only could we help them get started and find one another across countries and within subject matters within the region, but also Brazilian fellows could experience talking to Central European fellows. Remember, many people in Brazil had experienced a right-wing military dictatorship. And the fact that social entrepreneurs in both countries could talk to one another and discover that it doesn't matter whether it was a right-wing or the left-wing, they are both bad, both destructive, both made it impossible to solve problems and for people in our field to be free to do what we do, to see problems and go and solve them. So it was a, a very powerful addition to the fellowship. Ashoka's had a very careful strategy about where we have started the program, what sequence. We elect very few people relative to the total population, one per 10 million is our average per year. To get to a critical mass of fellows in a country you have to have a big country. And we want to get to a critical mass of 50 or 60 minimum by the end of three years. We just learned that if you don't reach that level, you don't have enough in the big subject matter areas or the big metro areas for the fellowship really to begin to start functioning. So we have started with the big country at the core of every continent, and then build out to the smaller countries around it. India, and then Bangladesh, Nepal. Brazil, and then Uruguay, Argentina. By the beginning of the nineties, we and the field were entering a new period. The whole field was reaching a much more mature point. We began to have fellows, not in two countries, but in many countries, with a very significant portion of the world's population. We're beginning to have not a handful of fellows, but hundreds. This year, we have been operating on a $20 million budget, and it has to now grow very rapidly for the next couple of years. There are two big things that cause that growth. One, we're adding uh, China, we're filling in, We started in Egypt, we're in the rest of the region around it. We've still got Western Europe and uh, other parts of the world, mainly Africa, still to fill in. More important, the second dimension of our work as a professional association providing services along the later part of the life cycle, us entrepreneuring together to cause major social changes where we pool our insights and then actively go after them with this very rich tapestry of programs that we've developed now coming together Uh, That's what Ashoka is today. Every fellow's fifth year we do an evaluation. Ninety-seven percent are continuing with the work. Eighty-eight percent have had other institutions they don't control copied the idea. Fifty-nine percent have achieved national policy impact and on average they're serving 174,000 people. We also have nominators, we have the business entrepreneurs who are committed. We have the volunteers all across the world in the chapters helping us with references, the whole body of people. This is an amazing community. This is a partnership over the full period of professional contribution. The friendship of peers, the mutual help, that's permanent, it's always valuable, very valuable. As you get further along the process and you've got a, a model that works, then you've got to market it. And so we have a strategic partnership with Hill & Knowlton that helps us there because the whole field is weak in that area. Then you hit the next stage, the marketing takes hold and you're running a big organization that's growing fast and there's a big movement out beyond, beyond. and you have management problems. Well. If there's one thing that our field is deficient in, it's management skills, because we haven't had the three centuries that business had to build up the language, the ways of thinking. We don't have business schools, none of that. And so we have evolved a very practical way of working with McKinsey & Company as a wonderful strategic partner in bringing the best knowledge that business has built up over the centuries to the top most powerful social entrepreneurs when they're ready. This, and the reason this works is it's very valuable for both sides. When you work for the top social entrepreneurs, you have a dream client if you're a consultant. You and the firm are learning about whole sectors of society you didn't know about before. Consumer protection, housing, and All that enriches the rest of your practice. So both sides benefit, and we've learned how to do this. In 1990 was the first meeting of a Mosaic group, which took place in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Only nine fellows, but each with a very different idea from different countries across Asia about how society can do a better job of helping all young people grow up. This is, in effect, us doing together what we do individually. This is group entrepreneurship. You take the best ideas that will change a field, that each fellow has developed. And by now, these fellows have developed ideas that are having a big impact, but they're partial. They're one idea, one delivery system serving one set of clients. When you put them together, you see maybe five, six principles a dozen delivery systems, and many more clients. And when you see that as a whole, you'll see major new ways that you can do your job better. Us together, looking at what we've learned, jointly pulling out the most powerful principles, and then together actively going and trying to flip the whole system. Well, that's an example of a second-generation activity that the field is now able to do, that Ashoka has spent 12 years learning how to do. and We have several of these things now ready to roll at the marketing stage. How all kids can grow up better, new markets for business, uh, major new revenue sources for citizen groups. There's so many of these opportunities that we are in a unique position to see and to market, and to drive home and cause change. We're doing three things. One, we're helping the best ideas and entrepreneurs get started, their ideas, their institutions, across their whole life history. Second, we're helping us as a community come together so we can individually help one another, so we can be much more than the sum of the parts, through the mosaics, for example. And then third, we're helping the whole field how can this field come together in the smartest possible way so that we will have the biggest possible and most beneficial impact as a field going forward generations. Our job is not to give people fish. It's not to teach them how to fish. It's to build a new and better fishing industry. And so all the way through our history, we have encouraged other people to come in. We don't want to be the only venture firm for social entrepreneurs. We've helped over 80 different groups. You know, they have their own emphases and whatnot, but we're increasingly now getting more and more institutions coming into the field, which is exactly what we want. We are serving this historical force. That's Ashoka's central purpose. This is a moment of absolutely historically profound change our job is to see it to help it in the most leveraged, most intelligent ways possible so we have to be completely listening to understanding what is this history where is it going and that's what every entrepreneur does you are constantly constantly saying all right we've gotten this far where are the opportunities where are the barriers how do we fix the barriers how do we move down this path each of these experiments is are developing the core methodology for our field. This is how we entrepreneur together. Any entrepreneurial institution, there's always the question, what happens if the entrepreneur is run over by a truck? Uh, I do not want to be run over by a truck, but we now are a community of so many good entrepreneurs that I think we're past that danger zone. I have a number of colleagues, just remarkable colleagues, who could take over tomorrow. I hope I would be missed somewhat, and I hope I'll be able to make really big contributions as all of us do, but I think Ashoka is past that danger point. What sort of a role will I play going forward? Uh, I have other ideas that fit beautifully with Ashoka. Um, Youth Venture is a spin-off of the Learning Initiative. I think it's the civil rights movement for young people. I think it's incredibly important. The idea is very simple. We want, as much as possible, every young person to know that if they have an idea, and they are willing to create a team, and they run that team, and they leave a lasting impact, we are with them to help make them succeed. Uh, Any young person who's had that experience knows that they are powerful. They are empowered to go and do anything. They know that they have just led, not in a simulation or a game, but the real thing. They have changed their world. They've put in place a tutoring service, a dance academy with peer counseling, sports that weren't there before, a radio, it doesn't matter. Their idea, their team, their impact. They're going to try it again and again, they get better, they get stronger. What we're building up to is a change in the whole dynamic, the whole understanding of what the youth years are about. Instead of saying, oh, we adults are in charge of everything, the classroom, the extracurricular, the sports, the workplace, say, you take initiative just like the rest of us. We know from the work of the fellows But this has a huge impact. If we can go from two or three percent of the population that are natural leaders to 50 or 60 percent in the next generation, what a difference that'll make in the lives of those people and in the health of society. The two founders of eBay, Biaro Mijar and the first president, Jeff Skoll, are both entrepreneur-to-entrepreneur members with Ashoka. They have helped us in many different ways. The most important thing that Pierre has done for us is challenge us to get beyond what we used to define as our ultimate goal. How do we help the entrepreneurial competitive citizen sector emerge? He said there's something deeper than that. You gotta keep pushing. And we now articulate that as everyone a change maker. This is analogous. He has a similar concept of universal economic democracy is what eBay makes possible. And what does it mean? Historically, 2 or 3% of the world's people controlled everything. In the last century, we created the wealth because of the Industrial Revolution to allow everyone to be a player, but that isn't the way things work yet. The entrepreneurs, the social entrepreneurs, are the cutting-edge of a transformation leading to everyone a change-maker. They are the role models. They're citizens who take an interest, who care about their neighbors, who organize, and who cause big change. No one anointed them. They did it. If They can do it. You can do it. At a second level, they're key. Think about it at the local level. Every time a social entrepreneur comes up with a new idea, it upsets the way things are done. It also upsets the idea that uh, things are the way they are. At the same time the entrepreneur is giving you a seed that they're trying to make as friendly as possible so that anyone in any community can take this idea and run with it. So the entrepreneur is not only a role model, they're plowing the earth, they're breaking up the existing system, and they're giving seeds that invite people to run. That leads to thousands and thousands of local change makers. With each new entrepreneur, uh, you have another plowing and seeding. As our field moves from being only local to national and gets wired together globally, the frequency with which New plowing and seedings hit every local community, increases faster and faster. Ideas from Bangladesh travel to Brazil and the U.S. It didn't happen 10 years ago. Now it does. As that goes on, you have this just absolutely magical multiplication of everyone becoming change makers and more and more local role models as well as the major social entrepreneur role models. When you have a world where only few percent are actors and everyone else is acted upon. The potential for the problems to multiply are faster than the solutions is, is with us. When everyone is a change maker, when they are empowered, they can see a problem and it's an opportunity, not a problem. Then we're all like white blood cells coursing through society except better. We not only destroy things that are problems, we can build and multiply things. This is very powerful.
0: Through this series, Ashoka hopes to inspire and spread awareness about social entrepreneurship and scalable solutions to global problems. The series is being used in the education arena, among businesses interested in corporate responsibility, by international development and civil society organizations, and by individuals seeking new careers and innovative ways to change the world. Ashoka would like to know what you think of this series. Please email your thoughts and ideas to ashokadvd.com at Ashoka.org. Recognizing the power of individual innovation and social change, Bill Drayton founded Ashoka in 1981. Ashoka identifies and invests in extraordinary individuals with unprecedented ideas for change in their communities, supporting them, their ideas, and institutions through all phases of their careers. For more information or to get involved, visit www.ashoka.org.
2: Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. Thank you, Limelight, for your support of the Conversations Network. The Conversations Network is supported in part by listener memberships, so please visit our website at conversationsnetwork.org to learn more about becoming a member. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Stephen Eng. Our website editor was Liz Evans. The series producer is Liz Evans.
1: My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll join us next time for another program from the Ashoka Social Entrepreneurship Series. The preceding program was brought
0: to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us
1: at itunes.stanford.edu.